I play a social distanced couple of sets of um, of tennis with a number of my friends in a a part of a, a four complex tennis scenario near a merry-go-round that's you know more moribund right now or dormant you could say which is you know thankfully because the music is really too loud and then for the most part I've been really circumspect about uh, sheltering in place very much uh, tr- abiding by whatever rules of uh, of quarantining and distancing when I venture out into the world have seen very very few people so just I'm I'm just in line essentially with anybody else who's you know essentially complied you know with the, with the full motif I read a lot I'm on, I'm on my third way through war and peace which is a, a sign of maybe mental illness in a way to have subjected oneself to such a I mean, it's a masterpiece, but yeah, it's a little uh, obsessive compulsive. Uh, you know, I think, you know, you could call it the weirdening. All of us are getting weirder and, you know, God bless us, everyone. There's no reason why that's, you know, uh, um, to be sh- to be denigrated, you know, to be a weird person. We celebrate weirdness in artists all the time and kind of even the straightest of persons in, you know, conventional society looks at weirdos in an almost sometimes awestruck way, sometimes condescending way, because we're a threat. If you're weird, you're a threat of sorts. So, you know, I've been embracing the weirdness, Brian. That's basically, that's, that's it. If that's, you want to grab that as a motif, that's essentially it. And, and writing music without words, mind you, um, just to finish this up, I don't want to be terribly prolix about this, you know, my answers, but I, I have written a lot of music, but um, a total incomplete dearth or paucity of uh, of lyrics because one doesn't know what to say in the wake of the way that the turn that the world has taken. I don't I don't know what to make of it. Perhaps you have a theory or two and we have to take everyone's theory with a kind of a, you know, with a modicum of a grain of salt or whatever. But, yeah, I don't know what's going on but i have uh, melodies have emerged from this and a lot of reading of tolstoy that's about it and or indulging to try to make life you know if you want something if you want to have a scone with clotted cream or a margarita gosh go ahead and <laughs> go ahead and have it because um we don't we, we don't know what the future where the future lies no, you know in quasi moderation but you know whatever anyway so there's my long-winded answer to what i've been up to i actually do have a theory for you as far as why the melodies have been coming and the words haven't and it and it relates to my own life and and what i've been dealing with as i mentioned to you earlier i've I've been dealing with some of my own personal issues on top of the pandemic and i can be prone to depression if there's enough external forces and what i found is in the early days of the pandemic I was unable, first I was unable to listen to any music at all. Yeah, I can relate to that. Sure. Yeah. And then I kind of weaned myself into listening to music by listening to ambient music and jazz and post-rock, things like that. Completely wordless. Are you familiar with the concept of anhedonia? Yes, of course. I've had, I've had a spade of it before <laughs> when, um, when I was dating somebody 
who had borderline personality disorder. Yes, when um, I was involved with her, I didn't know it, why, why I was incapable of happiness on any sort of level. But yeah, let's not, um, let's hope, let's cross our fingers that we don't cross paths with that particular affliction anymore. Yeah, I mean, it can be, obviously, you know, I don't know where you're referencing it, you know, from essentially, but it can obviously be occasioned by almost anything, anyone, perhaps. In a world that, you know, is, is sort of um, parsimonious of, of, of providing us with too much happiness, I mean, you know, we have to sort of find it within ourselves, how many cults there are, how many programs, how many really obviously legitimate ways in which you just look to yourself to try to provide your own happiness as a kind of mothering or fathering of oneself, right? You know, that that's all. Yeah, so I'm sorry if you were anhedonic, if that's the adjective. Part of my understanding of the concept of anhedonia is, is, is it's also an inability to derive pleasure from things like music and entertainment. And for that reason, you know, I... I just I wasn't getting any joy in the process of listening to music. I wasn't getting any joy in the process of writing. And I wonder if that's something you know, you've been able to relate to over the past several months. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yes. There's if I think that it's sort of like the um this is going to be another one of those pretentious literary kind of illusions, but you know, it's sort of like um, Oscar Wilde saying about the death of Little Nell in Dickens' old curiosity shop that a person would have to have a heart of gold not to, or a heart of stone not to laugh at the death. Like the depiction of this, oh, you know, super sentimentalized um, sort of death. So I, I, I would be greatly suspect of anybody who hadn't been deeply affected by, I mean, there's an even meta thing going on here, Brian, of people going, wow, when things go back to quote unquote normal, many of us will be left behind because we won't know how to be social in a truly social sense. Like I see you through the modern, <laughs> you know, majestic, um, you know, miracle of technology, and yet it's not a real meeting between two people just hanging out in a pub or whatever or saying hello in person. So there's that other sort of meta fear of lots of people who have adjusted to this who won't adjust back to the ostensible normalization of things as, you know, as they go. So, and yet, yet again, that way madness, madness lies to worry too much about this stuff, it seems. We shouldn't we should try to minimize our worry, you know, worrisome, you know, sides as much as we can. I think. Are Are you somebody who traditionally uses music as a means of catharsis, of therapy, of channeling what you're dealing with in any given moment? Yeah, I mean, in other words, am I still a protracted prep school adolescent in a way? <laughs> yeah, sure, of course, you know the. The childlike artist and any artist is going to relate relate to that. Um, uh, so there's a certain self consciousness there. Uh, I think I think all of us use mu music to pump ourselves up and to become excited about the little moments of being that we have in, in life. To pull ourselves out of a depression, I don't know that music helps. It's possible that it could be a kind of forced thing. You know, to put on some happy toe tapping, here comes the sun, Beatles song, or and your bird can sing, or, you know, the association or something where you just go like, wow, 
you can't be depressed when there's such joyous, you know, joyously made harmonies in this world. The beat, you know, put on the Beach Boys, and maybe, gosh, things aren't so so bad anymore. But I don't know that I do that necessarily because I'm I'm too self conscious. You know, I would just be thinking like, oh, I'm just doing this just to try to cheer myself up. I should just let myself be really bummed instead and not try to, you know, fabricate it, as it were. The flip side of the question is the the creative side of the question. If you're ever in the process of kind of revisiting old songs, for example, the best of that came out last year, uh, are you able to kind of pinpoint it and really... Uh, understand what you were going through at a given time based on the music that was created then? Yes, very much so. Absolutely. If if I were the kind of person who dwelled upon the past, but I'm, I'm only selectively kind of that. And artistically, I don't do that because everything that we've ever done from 1988 to today is something that I would just go, that was of its time. That was um, part of the zeitgeist, good for that. Um, Terrific, but what's really important is what I will do next to try to be a reaction against what I've done before or to, to please myself. So much of it, so much of it comes from this notion of, creating something that you oneself would like to hear in terms of writing when you write an essay or a short story you're most likely if you're pure about it writing something that you you would like to read i mean i've been asked before of going like do you think of the listener when you're writing a song and i just go well yes one listener myself you know, I really, I do listen to me with like, wow, what would send me in a way that's sort of like Cocteau Twins meets Sonic Youth, sort of sort of way that's still a pop song, you know, or a, or a drone. Um, that's that's who I think of, that's for sure. But yeah, I would say without a doubt, music is a great consolation. I mean, it's ironic because I write almost every song as a consolation to myself for the many downs of life all the vicissitudes and for other people to just know or at least to say it's okay it happened to me most likely too it's the human condition it's fucked up and we'll get through it anyway one hopes you don't get through it oh well god bless sorry to hear that but uh, you know you just you have to choose hopefulness i think in a way or total hopelessness. I think they're in the, the same thing in a weird way. To be really hopeful for the future. We have so little control about what's going on. This this proves it. I like your point, you know, uh, uh, about the idea of just going like, wow, I'm drawing so many musical blanks. Uh, even the most joyous thing, a.k.a. music, is, is rendered substanceless for a short time. So it does get to question yourself and the world, you know, in a super philosophical way, I think. Do you think that a side effect of being somebody who's so prolific or, or perhaps something that fosters your prolificness is the desire to, once you have created something, just have it be out in the world and, and kind of be done with it? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I've read enough theory of art to, to, to embrace many of the perspectives Right, because someone could say, like, "Gosh, once something is finished, it's 
it's done. It's sort of like that idea of painters going, William de Kooning or whoever, you're a New Yorker, so you know about painting or whatever. We can try to define this for the kids at home that didn't, you know, take uh, Reed Herbert reads art history or whatever. But de Kooning would say, you know, these things are abandoned. I, I think that's a wonderful verb. You just kind of, who knows when anything is done? That's why so many artists, man, K, tinker with things for years. You must know in your acquaintance of musicians and novelists and playwrights and you know all those all all the people who congregate to New York, bloggists, journalists, etc. So many people who just go, gosh. I have something that I'm almost done with and they tinker with it forever and ever. And maybe they just have that, that block that says I, they can't let go of it. But I would all, you know, in my coach like way, I would say, just let it go and go on to the next thing. None of us, none of us is that important in, in so many ways to, to think that, you know, only only the future will judge and one, you know, one won't be around for that anyway. So just make things in order to be done with them, you know, and let them and let them be done. The same metaphor comes from cooking. Nobody wants some uh, uh, overcooked green beans, no matter how much garlic and butter you throw in or whatever, you know. So there you go. This will be an interesting experiment for you. Do, do you think that there's a possibility that you could release wordless music instrumental music into the world we've done enough i'm always robin hitchcock said there aren't enough instrumentals somehow and i think he's very very correct in that um i think that there's there's a way in which the notion of not having the lyrics imbue the songs with anything at all is a really neat and pristine kind of notion. But I'm a loquacious bastard, so I'll probably have a lot to say. You know, it'll come all spilling up. But right now, I've got just an empty notebook of no no words whatsoever to the point where I'm going, you know, I'm not worried about never writing words again. But yes, I like instrumental music and obscure music. I was also thinking in light of the, my affection for the Cocteau Twins of thinking of just garbling, mumbling things because words have rendered themselves, you know, kind of just a mumble in, in life anyway. I read, I don't know about you, politically, I've, I've been apolitical almost all my life. I've been dragged into to the political arena and just I try to read both sides just to see what gobsmacking propaganda is thrown, you know, and and or... Uh, you know, legitimate arguments uh, uh, as well. So, yeah, that's that's been another change. If you want to tie this into the um, uh, apparent changes that have happened is one thing I've just been more aware because you can't avoid it on some levels too. I've been mostly, I would categorize, heretofore I would categorize myself as a, a total aesthete, somebody who just, you know, completely lived for art, but now that's not, seemingly possible do you find yourself becoming political or are you just reading more about politics oh gosh that's good that's a really that's a really difficult question because you have to say what do you mean political because i certainly read a lot i just say that i would just i would read I, I would read both sides just to marvel at it i mean i just i don't i don't have any I'm, i don't have any allegiance to any anybody at all the left has been my, you know, my my 
proclivity for the forever and yet the left has become so radical so i just don't know where again there's a certain there's an element of bewilderment there that it's just it's it just seems so com convoluted that who knows I, I you wonder about people who are passionately and determinedly right and convince themselves um sometimes that they 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 mar I marvel at them as well. I don't know. You can't be neutral on a moving train. At a moment like this, you almost kind of have to be political to some degree because of everything yeah. that's happening. I guess I am at the same time. What's just a one voice? <coughs> I would have I would have liked to seen to have seen Bernie Sanders win just to see what he could do. We saw what Trump could do. Yeah. Let's uh, let's see what Bernie could do. You know, it's just a sort of reciprocity kind of thing of going, okay, you had your shot. Let's see what somebody else uh, could try. It would just be really interesting. You know, obviously this has been a catastrophe. Um, who knows? That's I, I just would have loved to have seen. I loved Bernie Sanders. I think he's genuine as far as politicians go. I trust none of them save him and his heart although andrew yang seemed to really care about people and yet is that just a sentimental kind of way of basing things rather than an informed political thing i watch um sagar and crystal ball they're the hill rising um each day a couple times a day to listen to them because they pit it's not exactly the verb but they put um, you know, uh, a, a very far leftist with a quasi-conservative who's also a sensible person, which just gives us hope, back to that theme again, to think both sides can talk to each other. You know, where is the sensible voice slash ideology? Where Where is that? I think many people on the right are lost, too. They look at Trump as, you know, he's a madman. This is a crazy person who's who's also afloat in a boat that he's never sailed like he's he's mad that guy's crazy you know and he also is in, in incompetent not like if someone shoved any of us lay persons in you know that's that's why you can't throw the first stone somehow you can throw the stones at many of his gaffes that's you know policies allegiances etc you can't really throw the ultimate stone because this is I mean, that's my you know theory. Take it with whatever grain you wish. But yeah, like he's a crazy person. You know, no different from the guy yelling, you know, under a bridge somehow. God bless him with a sign that says you know whatever. He's no or a person in a in a in a sanatorium of you know uh, who's who's crackers. That that guy's bonkers. So therefore, you just you know. But yet again, when you deal with the safety and the you know the the brinksmanship of a, an entire nation, that's a different thing from just one one mad woman going walking through the park feeding pigeons. So anyway, that's it. But you're right. We've all been we're all forced in some ways out of our little cubby holes. Those of us who've who've bypassed the whole political motif. Um, you know, we're in the arena now. You're right. Yeah, we're here. You know, if the onus is on us to, I don't know what, again, baffled. Is this the first time in recent memory or I guess first time period in which you've had this much trouble writing lyrics? 
Oh, it's not trouble because I wouldn't say trouble. It's just that I don't, I don't bother with them. It's not oh, trouble. Only comes when you're saying to do something and you can't do it. But I'm not trying. I'm in a, <laughs> I'm in a state of great not trying. Yeah, it doesn't seem. I don't have an idea for a novel either, um, so I'm not trying to write one. Um, just, just for the. I don't understand people who create just for, just, just out of. They, they said Paul Simon used to go like a job to his office from nine to five to go and 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 write, and that's that would spoil the pleasure of it if he treated it <coughs> as that was a punch the clock sort of um, ordeal for me. So I'm not trying. Is it clear after every album that there's going to be another album? Gosh, I can't say. I can't say. It always seems as as though that's a that's an assumption, um, but I'm not sure now because the the meta question of whether I should make another record or just have a statement be be made, or whether that's a, just another you know Uber voice that's saying be concerned about one's legacy. I was never concerned about anything other than growing up in public. I never wanted to be famous. I never wanted to be rich. I just wanted to make things. So I'll probably make something. Um, I don't know. I don't know the span of how, what, what it will take. I don't, I don't consider the audience or whatever, like whether it's commercial or whether it's palatable, it's only if it pleases me, if that's selfish or utterly, pristine i'm not sure um so i can't say this time but we've always operated under this sort of auspices of saying yeah you know this is one with you know but then on the next one we'll do this that and the other and there are always reactions against the last one if one is really noisy then the next one is folky if one was really jangly then the next one is spacey um we've tried to do that within a very you know myopic kind of worldview right mind you you know we know i know that i write in a certain genre with little fluctuations or whatever so i don't know maybe we'll do another record most likely yes who, who know again who knows there's so much just uncertainty everywhere you said with regards to writing a novel that you needed an idea which obviously you know makes sense that before you sit down and write a book you, you need some kind of overarching idea do you need an idea in the same way when you sit down to create an album? No, I would say no. I, that would that would veer toward the conceptual. So I would I would I would probably um, deign to say I don't I don't have an overarching idea. It might appear it's just a it's sort of like an accumulation of ten to twelve songs that constitutes a record. So you just kind of go, okay, I have ten songs, twelve songs now. Um, They'll, they'll most likely have an overarching theme simply because they were written within proximity to each other. Some of them, some get revisited later, you know, years down the line, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, I think a natural, 
I think I've, if I ever set out to write, are you a fan of any concept albums yourself? Do you like The Wall? Do you like Genesis Lambs Lies Down on Broadway? Do you like The Who's Tommy or any of any of those things? Even Sonic Youth Daydream Nation is kind of a concept. The concept is New York City in a way, probably. I have my misgivings with Pink Floyd and I like Gabriel Genesis Sunray. I certainly like Sonic Youth, but, but what I would say is, you know, I like Sonic Youth because I like Sonic Youth. I don't think that I'm attracted to it because it's a concept record necessarily. Yeah, even if it is. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're almost, uh, you could use the word quaint about them. That it's interesting that in, in some ways it kind of marks a musical artist trying to write something closer to a musical than the conventional LP. It often spans two CDs or two LPs, so it takes a while. It takes the same, perhaps, amount of time that a musical, if you were to go to Broadway and go see something, it would be the same two hours that you'd spend with The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or what have you. So, um, so yeah, I suppose the concept of each of our records is just just something of its time, you know, of, of that time that I was writing, whatever I was going through and feeling I write very quickly and I write really, you know, pretty, you know, voluminously. So, but I don't, it's not something I pay attention to. Other people pointed out, it's just me going about my life. I get lots of ideas of things and I try them and some of them turn into songs because I don't know, that's where that's where craft comes in because you get an idea for something and suddenly, boom, all of your apprenticeship to Simon and Garfunkel and Swans and the Beatles and the Birds and psych- other you know pretty things, psychedelic music or whatever, kick in and form you. Put me in the place of where you are when the album when when you first start making an album in earnest versus what your current state of mind is. Oh, there's huge excitement when you start a record. There's just, their expectations. It would seem an utter indulgence or a superfluity to go into a studio and not, and be blasé. That's for heroin addicts and burnouts. I mean, for people who really, really, really just love working with each other and want to see what they can do. It's sort of like a painter painting as, you know, again, as, as posh, you know, pretentious as that sounds, it is kind of just saying, like, wow, we're going to have the elements all here. Let's combine them and see what emerges. So every time we go into a, a, a studio, whether it's just me and a click track or a drum machine, and we'll fill in the blanks later, or the or the four people in the band, um, every every time it's with such great excitement and expectations that you know, ultimate ultimately leads to. You know, many moments of discovery, you find out, you know, I, I think that I feel really sorry for people who have a really pat notion of how their record's supposed to st- sound, because there's so many variables, and, you know, to sound trippy, like the vibe of the people, the vibe of the studio itself, hopefully work at someplace comfortable, or the, the, the songs and what their, you know, their evolution, or times where people really talented people don't resist 
not putting extra tracks on a record, you know, overloading it with lushness or trying to oversell that instead of pairing it back where it needs to be. They're, they're, it, that's one of the really fascinating things about being in a studio. You just you look forward to just going, gosh, there's going to be innumerable decisions thrown at me, and the consequences aren't that dire. It's um, you know, it's not like we're the pretenders, you know, trying to uh, you know woo back a, a a faithful, you know, loyal contingent of fans or whatever. I mean, we're doing it essentially always for ourselves. So that challenge is just, it's, it's neat. It's freeing to look at it like that. And um, it often ends up just being, I don't think I've ever had a record where it was, gosh, you know, look back and go, that's a bad experience. They've all been really good experiences. They were what they were. Do you get a sense of the role that recording in studios has played in your career from the standpoint of obviously now, you know, the math has changed on that considerably with technology and with people's ability to just make music and put them directly out in the world. But it seems like so much of how you describe the music making process and just the process of being a, a band is really built around going into a studio. Yeah, that's all I'd say to that. I mean, living living in this, the studio enables since the Beatles made Sgt. Pepper and, you know, essentially said whatever you want to put in, uh, whether it's a, a brass band or an old-timey organ sound or a Mellotron and a flute, that that goes. So um, that, that, that amalgamation of things, you know, again, is very, very freeing. Do you feel like you need the confines of the studio in terms of time, money, things like that in order to serve as an editorial process? Obviously, traditionally, you don't have an issue uh, being prolific. <laughs> and I suspect that left to your own devices, you know, you could be uh, Robert Pollard or whoever. Yeah. Yeah, I could write. If somebody, if somebody Paul Simoned me, as it were. You know, I could go write songs like a factory or whatever. I think Andy Partridge has 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 done that himself. Um, you know, through the innumerable you know outtakes and four track demos and stuff. I'm not that enamored with recording myself that I would care to do low five four track sorts of things. I like the high end studio for sure. But if someone said you know, as a challenge, I went to graduate school because it was a challenge. You know, I'm the kind of person who goes, I'm going to try that just because it's hard. Just because, you know, just if I fail, I don't care. I think failure is one of the greatest things <laughs> in the world. You know, people should fail. Here's my message to the masses, you know, fail more often. It just makes it um, all the less scary for you to try. You know, we should all we should all try and try and be inspired. But no, I love the studio. Um, I I I try to have some quality control, but I, I I do write songs that please my own fanship of a guy that likes Sly and this Family Stone as much as he likes Ride and Slow Dive. You know that wow. You know this song should be. I have heaps of ideas. And moreover, Brian, I have a coterie of really cool people here in Los Angeles, the much maligned L.A., <laughs> right? I have so many good, good friends that it's fun to be around. They laugh and they're easy and they also push themselves very hard to work hard. Um, guys like Andy Creighton or uh, Rob Campanella or 
this um, woman we discovered singing called Lauren Tannenbaum. Um, you know, it's just a joy to be around them, and they add things to what I come up with that blow my mind. So that, that's always pleasurable to just go, wow, how, there was nothing before this, and we all added our ingredients to something t- to make something, let's hope, that we can frost with the appropriate production. It's nice to do more lo-fi stuff after having, again, that reaction to, you know, hi-fi, high-end studio kind of thing. So it's it's all been a, a great dream in the most positive sense. It's all It's all been really, really wonderful to do. I never did this to try to be famous. I never did this to try to get laid. I never did this um, to try to get money at all. Just, just for the, just like, it was there. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you feel like you're still pulling yourself out of your comfort zone and you're still challenging yourself? Can you point to things that you did on these records that were out of your comfort zone? I don't, I think sonically I relinquished so much control to the other people, to the producers and to the players, that they pleased themselves, let's hope. A lot of times musicians are dissatisfied with something, the end product. They look back and go, gosh, I wish I would have done something you know, different. They're, they're perennial sort of, um, uh, of vacillators in that respect. Um, so I, that's difficult for me to say because... Um, I tried to absent myself somehow from uh, other, th- other than the skeleton of the melody and the chord changes and the vocals and some percussion, some mellotron, some guitar. But I mostly just left it to my trusted you know, co- comrades to go ahead and um, color it in. So the colors that they used are different. Brilliant, Brilliant Feathers is a different record to not from things some that for sure but that's how it should be so and even though a lot of the same players played on both both records um it just it it's i i, I don't know what to say beyond that they did they, everybody contributed so much and i think that made it all the more of a, a gosh satisfying communal effort than if I would have gone in and sort of tyrannically approached it, like I have done in the past, to just go, this is going this way, that is going that way. But we've often worked with very um, strong-minded but genial producers, so that that helps. I can get my way if I want it, but I, I sort of seeded my way this both these last times. I just kind of just went, wow, you want to put that on there, okay? Do that a little bit in moderation. No, just oh, forget it. Yeah, that sounds really good. I changed my mind. Yeah, I trust you. Um, there was always a, a always a kind of I reserved the right to nix um, lots of things, but I ended up just you know giving them a pass. So there you are. What was uh, I guess? What was the precedent for for that that change of approach? You ask the most philosophical questions and sort of psychological questions too brian that's not cool (laughs) i'm kidding you uh you can ask away ah gosh that's that's so hard to say who knows that would only be if i had a shrink right now that would be up to her (laughs) i have no idea i'm i'm i am that oxymoron of a person that is really super self-conscious and not self-conscious at at all that's something that's really interesting to me from the outside looking at your career is, you know, certainly from where I stand, you seem to be extremely prolific. You've amassed this massive 
catalog of albums and you've released them at a pretty consistent clip. You've got these books, you know, may- maybe when you're doing the creating, maybe it doesn't feel as, as prolific. Do you get the sense though that you do have a good work ethic? Cause you know, it's, it's so interesting to see you describe this because you also at the same time seem to have a very laissez faire approach to the, the process of creating in that, you know, if it, if it doesn't come or it's not time, then you're not going to kick yourself over it. Oh no, I'm super assiduous. I'll, you know, I, I, I'll write fiction till three in the morning. Sometimes I'll have looked up from the clock and started really early with one of my dreams, taking a break for lunch and just right into the right into the night it just timed it that's a studenty habit that all of us whoever went out in your podcast land went to university can relate to those times where we just didn't mind staying up for two days to study something and get deeply into it i just i i revel in those things there's a certain masochist in all people who do who create and who do that um but it is a buzz. Gosh, we used to go into sleep deprivation times in studios when we didn't have enough money to just to have leisurely days. We had to work 24 hours straight things and we'd wait, leave the studio with our amps and guitars <laughs> as the sun was coming up in LA. You know, all throughout the 90s, we begged, borrowed, and stealed studio time from people, you know, uh, moonlighting uh, as well. So that's that sort of habit. That masochistic habit carries over over to there. You, I, you don't become terribly aware of one's own legacy or reputation at all when you're just immersed in some project that obsessively, compulsively you feel like doing hell or high water. So that's all. I mean, there's there's a romantic element to it. You know, so many people you know point out. Um, there's a romantic element, a self-regarding element to go, look at me, I'm slaving away, I'm riding until um, three o'clock. But it, that's, that takes a, you know, that takes a backseat greatly to the, just the immersion in, in something. And it doesn't matter whether it's the greatest thing you're going to try to make it really good. But if you fail, that's the way it goes. Do you get a sense of, of how your philosophy or your relationship to success has changed over the years? Um, you know, because now as you're describing, you're saying that you never got into the business to be, a, you know, I guess a rock star or massive success. Yeah. Well, in the 90s and the zeros, we did a lot more shows. We did a lot, a lot of tours. So there's an element of... And there was a frenzy when a lot of indie bands in the 90s signed to major labels and we lived in Los Angeles. So every label from Capitol on down to A&M or what have you took a look at us. Um, so there was a concern with that and all the people we knew in the 90s were industry types and the clubs were more, in Los Angeles in particular, were more sort of known for a place that scouts went so the industry was much more prominent cds were just coming out um money was being thrown about and lots of times people like gaffin were just signing bands to find out you know not knowing anything about them just to try them so there was a lot of things dangled in front of bands in the 90s and we toured heaps and we got a lot of expectations from people saying wow i can see you guys 
you know, in the new Alicia Silverstone movie or whatever you '90s reference you want to throw into the mix. So that that zeitgeist guided us a little bit too, weirdly enough, you know. Um, and then in the 2000s, when things relaxed and Guided by Voices could put out whatever they recorded in half a day on a tr- on a four track, that changed too because or pavement slackerdom. You know, which weirdly became something to pursue. A lot of times, bands in LA would pointedly try to be slack who could actually play. It's it's weird, but we have never had any any friends or any scene in Los Angeles. So our isolation. There's a couple bands we relate to, Idaho or Downey Mildew, um, for sure, um, from Los Angeles. But we 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 would run into them and be terribly cordial and do the odd show, but there'd never be any kind of, um, you know, uh, effortful effort to make a scene out of it uh, um, at all. There was a lot of very iconoclastic sort of um, bands that have come from Los Angeles. It's an isolating place. Again, there's a weird sociological thing. It relates to where where you're from somehow. You have a lockout studio in some faceless industrial place. You go to your drab job that you do just because... Um, you want to be in a band. You live in a megatropolis of Los Angeles, which no one can make any sense of. There aren't those distinct boroughs like you guys have in New York. Um, so you concentrate on just being a band, hopefully of the weirdest weirdos that you, you that get along. You know that also look good for the industry or or whatever that have the right vibe. You don't feel as much internal or external pressure to conform to something. But at the height in the 90s, when you were close to or a part of the zeitgeist, do you think that the pursuit of success ever really did shape the music that you made? Never. Never, ever. Not on my part, perhaps on a couple producers' parts who tried to make something radio-friendly or hoped to, because we write catchy songs, who hoped to come come up with something glossy. But because I've never touched more than four knobs in a studio in 30 years, you know, that's not my purlieu, not my lookout at all. That's up to them. I have ears to hear and just go, gosh, could you please turn up the guitars? I always want the drums lower than they are. Um, we don't, the, the sort of precedent for that for me always is my bloody Valentine's has really cool drums. They don't have to be overwhelming you. The song is the thing. The Beatles didn't mix their drums terribly hard, high. Um, that, that's all. That's up to the uh, protosorials sort of um, sort of thing to try to make it commercial but that always seems contrived and doomed as well unless it hits then it's not doomed <laughs> then it's then it's success which is again you know inexplicable right you know why did right said Fred have a big hit why did the why did the smashing pumpkins have a hit well sometimes because they have terribly catchy songs uh you know but they're not that huge why does a talentless person like you know i don't know i don't want to throw in any names but just you know pick pick somebody out of a hat is super mainstream you know why does that resonate with the lowest common denominator and 
let them go. God bless them. <laughs> See you. I don't need you. If you really like the new Taylor Swift record that she made with, with some guy that's not really an indie guy himself, go ahead, like it all you want. I'd like to. I'd like to school you a bit on something on something different. I'd like to turn you onto the Swirlies or the Lilies or um, the clientele or gosh or. Um, you, you probably even haven't haven't heard of Sly and the Family Stone, so let's get into that. You know, um, all, all of the above. You weren't chasing it, but you know, success is nice to a certain degree, and that you know, obviously, there's there's a dream of just being able to completely support yourself making music. No, whoa, 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 there, Brian. No one said that. <laughs> no, no one said that's even in the offing. Yes, that's a lovely that's a lovely goal. If and only if it doesn't make you a lazy artist, that just you know, countless are the examples, don't you think, that where somebody really got successful and didn't need to try so very hard anymore, and or just wrote about the trappings of fame and or success, which is a banal, seemingly to be, it's a banal topic too, or that that characteristic thing of. The Echo and the Bunnymen, for example, just writing about their lyrics were about what it's like to be in a band in Liverpool, you know, in 19, uh, late uh, 1987 or something like that. That's that's not my that's not my intention uh, at all. But you know, again, these things can't necessarily be planned. You know, things things happen as they happen, and they happened as they happen, uh, as they happened. And that's the that's the way it goes. To buck against that seems utterly futile. The people I know who are really bitter about stuff, gosh, I feel terrible, terrible for them. Like a person who majored in something because mommy and daddy wanted them to major in it when they were in college. Those were the most unhappy people I knew. A guy, you know, or or, or a gal. So many of them at UCSB where I went you know, who were economics majors or business majors and they sculpted and they painted and or they ran track or wanted to be on the soccer team, but they couldn't do it because there was pressure to quote unquote be do something practical, you know, something marketable, which is is, is cause for empathy, right? In a way. I mean for me, that's that's too bad that you, you you capitulated to that or they set such strictures that you wouldn't get the university experience or what have you. This is so off topic, but you know, it all re but at the same time, it's not, I'm, I've become such a Zen <laughs> quote unquote person that, you know, it all does seem to relate in a, this is a dreadful term, holistic <laughs> kind of way. You know, it's, it's it, all of our lives have, have sort of coalesced, to this we're all we really truly are on this whole to wrap you know to tie where we began with the pandemic you know up we we truly are that's not a cliche we truly are in this all to, all of us together oddly it's admirable to to have made and continue to make music and not chase you know just the dragon of success in that way but I, the thing you, you you also at the same time the flip side of it is you do have to avoid veering too much into self-sabotage do you think there's a, a point in your career where where you were kind of pushing against fame to that degree no not not aesthetically 
there might be a certain element of self-sabotage in the sense that I have more margaritas <laughs> or beers per day these days than I nor normally do. But that's become, uh, you know, that's ostensibly become the new norm. If t if you tell one of your friends or family, you go like, gosh, I, sh I started having a cocktail at one o'clock or noon or something. They'll be more forgiving about it because you just, just kind of go, gosh, okay, you're stressed. There really isn't that much else to do. It's very hard to concentrate on reading things other than just stuff on the internet. The internet holds sway over all of us. It's almost the god we bow down to. It, it, it beckons to us, too, when you pick up a novel by somebody or a book of poems or some nonfiction that you're into. Perhaps in the back of your mind, you're going, what's on CNN right now? Or what is the state of the world? Or what kind of protests are going forth in Belarus? Or for me, as a tennis freak, what's happening at the U.S. Open right now, right now in my beloved New York? What's the weather like there? How interesting, how weird it would be to be in a vibrant city that there's, you know, where there's, it's a ghost town of sorts. So, yeah, um, the world, the world knocks and it's, uh, it behooves us to answer sometimes and other times to not come to the door. What do you get out of reading War and Peace for the third time? The joy of Tolstoy's style. He's an amazing stylist. He's an amazing psychologist. I'm such a geek that I'm. I compare the translations of them. That they're they're, they're very interesting, and um, I got got a couple of favorites now. Uh, but it's 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 his style, and it's his his immediacy. It's one of those novels you can pick up in medias race, and and get a lot out of it straight away. Um, like Don Quixote is another one. It's so episodic somehow. And if you are familiar with the characters, that makes it all the more rich. He's a powerhouse for a reason. Um, despite the misogyny, um, despite the glorification of war, you know, that these are neither things that I find in, in the slightest, you know, something for us to embrace in 2020 or any time really. Um, but that's that's all. And also back to that sort of quasi masochistic notion of like, yes, I'm doing this <laughs> this monumental ish kind of task. You know, once again, it's just it's interesting to delve really deeply into something. Haven't you ever listened to a record three or four times or more obsessively in a row where you just go, wow, I am go I'm going to go down this proverbial rabbit hole. There's a joy in that. There's a there's a there's a painful joy, you know, to, to do that. To listen to my son and I listen to Fleetwood Mac, the Fleetwood Mac song uh, Sarah or something. One of or one of those, you know, like thirty four times in a row on a road trip, you know. And just what? Why did we do that? Just to see how much we could torture ourselves in a pleasurable fashion. <laughs> 